This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host, always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, Professor Mr. Stephen Palmer. Howdy. And on tonight's show, we're going to be looking at a real Hong Kong classic from the 80s as we check out God of Gamblers, um, starring Chow Yun-Fat and Andy Law. Uh, but that is coming up a bit later in the show. But uh, first, of course, it's time to ask what you've been watching. And Stephen, what has been holding your interest since the last episode, if anything? Well, the funny thing is, I had a bit of time on my hands. <laughs> really? what's that like it's hell um so so along with with all the usual watch i have watched a couple of things with an eye on tonight's show um the first thing i saw i got to watching ip man 4 the finale um okay i don't know if you've seen the other ip man films i'm sure i've seen the first three um i really enjoyed one and two um which really sort of spawned that whole exploitation mm. movement moving on like the grandmaster and um the legend continues i think, the I think other one. yeah with anthony um, wong yeah there, there was, there, there's a yeah. bunch um and, and so and i take it by that you didn't really like the third one the third one the third one had a, a good hook i mean it's obviously you know it's, it had donna yen versus um versus mike tyson which is an interesting enough hook and certainly the fight itself was interesting it's just a shame that the story itself really wasn't that particularly interesting. It didn't seem to come together. And it felt like more like a Ip Man fantasy than, you know, a, than a historical document. And that's really saying something when you consider how out there the first two volumes of this story have been. Yeah. Um, this one just felt like, oh, it's just, you know, generic Kung Fu movie. We just happened to throw, the, uh, throw into the, the Ip Man name. Yeah. So... I really loved the first film, and I really liked the second film. Um, I remember going to see It Man 3 at, in uh, Leicester Square on Christmas Eve a few years ago, down in, down in sort of near Chinatown, um, and coming home on the, on the train Christmas Eve, incredibly disappointed, because I really didn't like it at all. Um, I felt that the, the Mike Tyson stuff was a bit of a stunt car. I thought the actual fight itself was actually quite good, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but but just what why? And and there and there are general issues with the Ip Man films that they're um they're not very accurate to reality. Um, obviously, the, the the big hook is you know he's considered the sort of the the the, the master the Sifu of of Bruce Lee, which actually isn't true. Their paths didn't even cross at all. And was um, 60 years old and it, it, there's quite a lot of sort of mythologizing around him um, and that's okay because Chinese cinema Chinese literature is, is full of the sort of mythologized heroes um, like uh, Wong Fei Hung who, who's a version of which is in like the Once Upon a Time in China movies and a million others and then further back beggar so people like that so it man's just the latest person to, to become this mythologized creature. So I, I really didn't like the third one. Didn't really understand the point of it. Didn't realize there was a need for it. And so when I saw that Man 4 come out, I was even more 
down on it before he even got it going. Now, the, the truth is, Donnie's not getting any younger. And um, I, I, was, I was a bit worried about it all round, really. It's, um, it's the story of his... So, so in the last film, um, spoilers, his wife died during the, the third film. And he's now sort of a, sing, a single parent. And his son has become a bit of a little prick. And it suggested <laughs> to him that they... Is, we're now in the 60s, 1960s. And it's just to him, he goes off to San Francisco and um, tries to get his son an overseas schooling, quite quite a common thing which sort of went on then. Um, now, if you remember, the first two It Man films were obsessed by racism and then sort of beating it by xenophobia. So the first film was very anti-Japanese, pro-Chinese. The second film was very anti-British, pro-Chinese. That doesn't really happen an awful lot in, in the third film. This one is very... Well, it goes to America in the 1960s. Obviously, race relations aren't great. Um, but again, does the same old tropes again of the the Chinese are, are very xenophobic, but this time it's because they're protecting themselves. And it centers on a couple of Americans who are complete knobheads. And <laughs> it's just ridiculous, ridiculous, especially when you think this is a time of sort of 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 the battle for racial equality that that was happening in the civil rights world with black people. Now, I know this didn't hold true for the Chinese, but you know, we 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 have to run with it. Um it's very simplistic. This journey never happened. This is utter fantasy from beginning to end this film. Um it's just another excuse to slip in a little um little bit of Bruce Lee into there, which is is fine. Um it's uh, who is it? Donnie Chan, is it? Danny Chan, someone like that. He, he, he's fine in it as um yeah Danny Chan. He's fine as Bruce Lee in, in the little bit that he appears in. Um, it's it's got a slightly older Donnie Yen in there, but he he, he does it man really well. This kind of sort of laid back, almost pacifist guy that is also a living weapon. I, I kind of like his um portrayal of it man in this. Oh, in in, in the whole series really. But the story is so simplistic. What it reminded me of, do you know that Once Upon a Time in China and America? Is it the fourth or fifth in that in, in that series where they go to the Wild West and yeah, everything yeah. everything just doesn't feel quite right? Well, the problem with this film is it's, it's firstly the, the broad racial story going on, but secondly, it doesn't feel like America in the 60s. It feels like what somebody might think America in the 60s might have been like i.e. looks just like it is now. <laughs> it, it, so it doesn't, doesn't really evoke a sense of time and place. Um, it only really exists within within San Francisco's Chinatown, which literally does look like it, because I've been there fairly recently, so it does look like it did now and then, so I guess that's fine. Um, Scott Adkins, the, um, uh, I think he's from Birmingham. He plays the, the main bad guy. But there's a fundamental flaw. Basically, everyone in the U.S. Marines learns karate, apparently. And karate is a le- much better than those yellow people stinking kung fu. And it never once addresses the fact that karate comes from Japan. And I'm not sure if it's just meant to be so obvious we're meant to realise the irony. But it makes <laughs> it's never even mentioned, never even used as a... As, as, as something to play back it's really weird um 
Yeah. It's fine, right? It's absolutely fine. I preferred it to the third film. It's it's got it's not just got plot holes in it. It's just got holes in it. Um, it, it it's utterly unnecessary. I don't believe anybody asked for it. But you know, yeah, Yen Yen is charming and he's got charisma. And and the less hard he tries, the better he is. So I, I think he's really good. Some really really fine action, some great great fight, fight scenes in there. But it just feels a bit like like those last couple of Once Upon a Time in China films, where it just hasn't got the oomph to to make you really give a damn, and and they're fairly unnecessary. Um, so that was that. So again, fine. And then I was on Amazon Prime, and I noticed um, it popped up a couple of um, Stephen Chow films. Um, the Usuals, um, including Justice My Foot, which is one of my favourites. But there's one on there I'd never seen before. Um, Lookout Officer. Have you seen Lookout Officer? I've got it on my watch pile, but I haven't actually watched it yet. No, really weird. So it's, it's, a, it's a remake of Where's Officer Tuba, which is a Sammo Hung film, um, made ooh, four years later. This is 1990. This is Stephen Chow. He's just on the cusp of becoming a superstar. So he's known, he's known in, he's made a few films, probably starred in, in maybe 10 films, but hasn't really made that jump yet. Yeah. Um, big tv star of course at the time um and yeah this remake so basically um bill tongue one of those people that always plays bill tongue in all these films um plays uncle bill (laughs) um he's policeman all action policeman and gets killed during a um during an operation uh, a police operation not a a medical one and uh, goes up to heaven and is told that because he committed suicide, he, he can't go into heaven. He goes, hang on a minute, I didn't commit suicide, I was murdered. And that's not what it says here. And he gets an opportunity to go down, back to earth, heaven can wait style, and um, clear his name. And, and basically get, get revenge for, for the, on the people that killed him. Um, to do this, they assign him a proxy who happens to be Singh, a new young policeman played by, of course, Stephen Chow, because his character is always called Singh. <laughs> Uh, thing and um and of course he's useless and he's an idiot and they have lots of adventures together and it's you know it's classic molito stuff um it's not the greatest it's very full of poo and fart and wee jokes more than any other film i think i've ever watched how you know but but chow's in fine form but he's you know this this isn't the 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 Chow of Kung Fu Hustle or Shaolin Soccer or even, you know, even Justice My Foot or uh, Love on Delivery. You know, he's, he's not quite the superstar yet, but he's certainly yeah. got, got charm. He's working with a couple of um, sort of big stars of the day in Bill Tung and Stanley Fung. Um, Amy Yip has a, has a, has a short cameo in, uh, in uh, I bet you can guess what Amy Yip's um, character is based around that's right her gigantic breasts because that's always the way with her um but what is interest two things that are interesting about it one is i did complain about all the poo wee and fart jokes it's very scatological but all those sort of random scatological jokes that happen throughout the film actually end up tying back in together and actually making a making sense in part of the plot 
Um, I mean, it's a bit forced, but that rarely happens in these kind of films. Usually things are just thrown out there. But, you know, if you get disgusted by a cat shitting on a temple, uh, on, on an altar... There is a reason for it, <laughs> and, well, that's good, and, then. and it and it kind of worked. But more interesting was so this film. What I say it was nineteen ninety. Um, has got a little sort of social political commentary go on the go as well, which quite often some of these films did. Um, you know, they they were meant to be consumed. They're, they're they're like um they're like junk food. They're a snack. They're not really meant to exist outside of you going to watch them of the time and going back and analysing yeah. them. They're they're. You know, they're, they're really cheap, made really quickly. I mean, just go and have a look at how many films Stephen Chow made in, in about four years. It's um, it's phenomenal. But, you know, these films are made in a budget and just thrown together, and they probably didn't have great plots. But it's just fairly reasonably made. There's a, there's a bit of fun police stuff. There's a bit of Moly Tao stuff going on. And actually the end sequence with a bit of wafu and, and demons and stuff going on is, is, is really quite good. But the social political stuff is it's constantly referring to the state of the Vietnamese boat people in Hong Kong. So, you know, not wanting to get too historical about it, but there obviously was an issue with all these immigrants from Vietnam at the time. And and the film, again, uses that. You know, some of the jokes are commentary on that. So quite often those films, I don't get half the jokes because a lot of it are, are based around the Cantonese language. So rather than the slapstick, it's, it's sometimes you think, oh, that went over my head. But this one was kind of interesting because it, it, on, on three, four occasions, it used the plight of the Vietnamese boat people as, um, as a social commentary. So a weird one for Amazon to have. They've only got four or five Stephen Chow films. Um, and... But actually, it it was all right and kind of entertaining. Just don't just don't expect it to be of the quality of Kung Fu Hustle, of um, yeah. of, of Shaolin Soccer, of God of Cookery. You know, any any of those that that made sort of post. Um, well, maybe another film we might talk about a little tonight, <laughs> which is um, you know this this was the year that Stephen Chow made it. That this wasn't the film that really made, turned him into a superstar. So yeah, two. Two films, both of which I didn't really give a stuff about, both which I enjoyed to different levels. But look at Officer, definitely worth 90 minutes of your time if you um you can handle a bit of the scatological going on. Well, I mean, we talked numerous times before about Amazon being basically the internet's video shop, the way the fact that they've just thrown so much 80s and 90s like video shop fodder onto their servers. So the fact that they got a couple of obscure Stephen Chow movies on there doesn't kind of surprise me, especially when you look at the fact that they got um, they got things like Turkey Shoot and Frog Dreaming and um, what's the other one? Fire and Ice and all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff. So if you're into like obscure cinema, it's a great place to to uh, check it out. I mean, obviously I have to check it out because I mean this is a name Yip movie I haven't seen, and I mean I have to ask, did she include a Yip tease in this one? So she plays um, Stephen Chow's commanding officer. Okay. Um, she's only in a single scene. Um, basically, she's a very austere, prim and proper, process-driven woman. Um, due to the uh, magical machinations of the ghost, she ends up getting a bit randy and pulls her top open to release her her memories, which do, of course, as always, remain enclosed in her in her Plus. in her bra. But yeah, you know, Amy Yip's there just to show off her bosoms, and <laughs> and um, I mean, you you dismiss Amy Yip for this, but I mean, she's a key 
figure within the cat free industry. She 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 absolutely is, and and yeah, you know, I've actually reviewed a book about Amy yet, so I know how popular she is with people, and I know why she's popular with people. Although her herself, she would um, the, 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 her stories is is not the happiest, and and she will constantly tell you that her boobs aren't as big as you think they are <laughs> but but yeah but um yeah i mean she's actually she's in one of the funniest scenes in this it's just you do have to view some of the stuff which is being said within the context of the time 1990 in hong kong is probably like 1973 in the uk and probably about 19 19- 50 in the US um you know that it, it's not very progressive again we've talked about this before um actually <laughs> the scene she's in actually makes a joke really is making a joke about um workplace sexual harassment um but you've got to see it to understand it let me okay p- please watch it in the next two weeks and let me know what you think but it's I'll uh, uh... And see if we can fast track that one through. <laughs> I mean. But yeah, no, well, well you know, really, no, like, like you say, I mean, you, you, you've put a positive spin on, on Amazon's um, uh, product. I find, I find, <laughs> I find it utterly random, hard to navigate. Yeah. It's got a terrible algorithm. Um, they're far more yeah. interested in showing you sort of their Amazon originals, which is fine. Um, I, I don't have Amazon Prime to watch Amazon Prime. I have it to have my parcels delivered early. It's just it's just a bonus. Um, unlike Netflix, which is all about its own content and nothing else really these days. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Netflix has this problem with, the, at the moment, they're just churning out too much content. Mm. And the fact is they're ending up with a bunch of shows which ha- end on cliffhangers which they really have no intention of finishing. And the most recent victim of that being Daybreak, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. It was uh, basically a high school spin of Man Max with zombies. And it was uh, it was really, really, really fun. And had a great cliffhanger-style ending. And, uh, yeah, Amazon... Not Amazon, Netflix. were like, no, we're not going to finish it. And it's like, why do you keep giving us shows with cliffhanger endings? Either just, like, wrap up a season and have it have an end point and start afresh with each one so take like the hong kong and uh japan's approach to television where you run a show through and uh, that's it and then the second if it's popular you bring it back for another year and you start another story often with like a descendant of the previous character or something yeah so. i mean i mean a- a- asian drama korean drama japanese drama chinese drama does not have very often the second series there's some there's some korean shows which are kind of related there's some sort of police and action procedurals that but 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 they're usually as you say they're tangently related they just sort of exist in the same world i don't know many japanese shows that 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 do it again um yeah i i i I kind of prefer that sort of one and done and not and not feel left wanting at the you know either halfway through the season or at the end of the season at least with Netflix they don't end it halfway through so that's a bonus. Yeah, the only one I can think of that really sort of continue was Shadow Wars, uh, Nagana de Gindo, and then that was obviously Sonichiba's big show, and every season it was like a different descendant of this main character that that he would come back and play so. So it would be like you know Shadow Warriors two, and he would be like you know the the grandson of the previous guy, or something like that. It was um, I think as I said, I think it's just 
these damn cliffhangers that it, it just feels like so we just got bits of show everywhere um and a lot of them they're never going to get that sort of picked up you always hope that they're going to get picked up by the other but um as for amazon prime navigating it i find the best thing to do if you put in like a direct someone like brian trenchard smith and then you go on the recommendations bit underneath the film and you just try and follow the rabbit hole down through there you can normally do a bit of uh what should we say, streaming dumpster diving and uh, find yourself some fun bits and pieces that just by going through films you like. Yeah, so. just I, I was trying to use the cast thing to navigate. I was trying to find out some other films that built oh, yeah. hung a bit. Don't work. Like it, it works about five people that I tried today. Um, so hmm. you know, so where I, I usually quite enjoy going down the old Wikipedia, or IMDb, or whatever sort of rabbit hole and yeah. coming out the other end with a couple of new films to watch. I just, I just did not find that the Amazon Prime interface really did that. It's, um, it's just not as, it's just not as slick as it should be for a company the size of Amazon. And I think that's because they're not really that interested in you looking through their video library. They've got all Probably those, not. they've got all those love film DVDs, and I just haven't loaded them up, have they? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and the other good way of doing it, I mean, if you go on Letterboxd, Letterboxd will now tell you where you can rent or stream stuff too, so that's really helpful as well. So there's uh, there's my one bit of advice. Um, as for myself, the one thing that I did manage to catch uh, this time around was a documentary, kind of picking up on the theme that you established last time because you watched a music documentary and I caught uh, Nine Muses of Star Empire which is a making of the band style documentary about uh, the the idol band uh, Nine Muses and I was hoping for like a real sort of uh, broad look at you know the Korean pop industry which uh, sadly this isn't and to that extent, I would recommend checking out Viceland's uh, noisy documentary on uh, the K-pop industry, as I think it goes a lot deeper. and So it's a lot more accessible than this fly-on-the-wall documentary, but again, it depends on how much you really like the band Nine Muses, who are... The this documentary itself, it follows basically the making of this, this band as so they build up to their arrival performances, uh, which has been performed at this uh, super concert with all these other k-pop bands and it starts off interesting enough but because there's no narration and you're just watching this fly on the wall it's kind of uh, tedious to watch you know these nine girls basically get torn a new one by their in by their management company and it's funny enough the documentary underneath uh this one was uh, Star Management, Star Empire, the worst management company in the world. So that was kind of a spoiler warning of what was lay ahead for me. But yeah, it uh, it was an okay watch, but nothing to really uh, get too excited about. I mean, do you have any interest in the K-pop industry, Stephen? Or is this not your field? Well, I, I do like a bit of K-pop, um, and I'm fully aware. I mean, obviously, in some of those... Um... Uh, Dark Tales of Asian Cinema, which I really must bring back sometime. Um, the, 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 those stories are, you know, as prevalent in in the Korean music industry. I guess the entertainment industry mm. is all one thing. Um, so, but I, I wonder if it's going to tell me anything I don't already know. <laughs> that's, it's. That's, I mean, there's a couple of interesting bits. Piece. I mean, you basically watch. It reminds me a lot of the documentary Gear Girls. Uh, which is about uh, Japanese female wrestling. Mm-hmm. 
and um, you see these these girls that are just like constantly work 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 work, and they're like physically and psychologically broken down and the one girl that they've declared has been the leader of this group she's not working out so the management decide they're going to bring in a replacement and you see their casting process and there's like this wall and it's just full of these telephone book size um you know photo albums of all these girls that they got in their book and they just like bring it down it's like yeah we need a tall girl and they just got this like list of requirements they need and it's like if she can sing, it's good. It doesn't matter if she can sing or not. And they're just like flicking through these girls that, and it's like thousands of uh, people they got in their book. And it just shows like how disposable any of these members are. And it's more about creating a product than than anything. And it's just like this real factory industry that you that I don't know about anyone else. But I mean, we I say that, but we look at like the um, you know the pop the pop idol machine that Simon Cowell's running and you look over at uh, the American equivalents and stuff so well it's all kind of shocking to see the way that Star Empire are running the K-pop industry and you can easily compare it to what we're doing over here and what they're doing in the States it's just ours seems to be a little more um, not as uh, sterile in their production but yeah I saw um, a documentary I kind of enjoyed a few years ago was um, do you know the Japanese band AKB48? Of course. Yeah. So 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 for the audience who don't know, AKB48 are a idol group in Japan that basically do uh, helium enriched um, uh, did, EDM um, music. Sugar Rush, didn't they? I think they did. Yeah, helium enriched EDM so. music, basically. Um, the the forty eight is how many girls are in the band, although that doesn't even begin to explain it because there are about five, six spin off bands, all with forty eight, and then there's sub there's, there's thousands of girls in the AKB factory, um, but they have a very short shelf life. And um, documentary is called Show Must Go On. I think it was like the second. I think there's been a couple of them. This was the, this was the second one. But actually, it's kind of. Um, Although it's there to sell the concept of this of this band, and and it's a little bit different to bands in terms of they're not really there to sell records, although they do. They're there for people to go and watch, which is why there's so many of them. So you'll have one in you know set in Tokyo, set in Hiroshima, set in Kyoto, um, and and people go and watch them. It's about the live experience and having your favourite, and and then the sort of the leaders. People come, get too old, go. They they're under incredibly strict contracts not to have boyfriends or girlfriends, and they're not allowed to. You know, they've got to wear what they're told. And and actually, it was quite a surprisingly honest set of stories that it was telling about that it wasn't really hiding anything. It wasn't trying to show it up to be utterly glamorous. Um, includes the bit where one of the fans attacked one with a knife. I think that that that's in it for a bit. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's, that's, that's that's an interesting documentary, although hard to find with with subtitles. But it was a it was a hit film in Japan back in twenty twelve. But um, yeah, really interesting. Can't stand the music. Can't just. Well, I'm too old. My ears can't hear them sing. <laughs> it's, I, I much I much prefer my K-pop to my J-pop. I'm afraid. I'm just looking up their Wikipedia entry now, and it's saying like in t- in twenty thirteen in February, group member uh, Minimi. Uh, Mini Gishia had her head shaved and appeared in a YouTube video to apologise after it was reported by a tabloid she'd spent the night with a man in violation of her contract. Yeah. And she was demoted to the status of trainee, which is a real 
brings uh, to mind like the when you look at um, with the New Japan Pro Wrestling that when you start off you start off as a a young lion and you have to like you're assigned another wrestler and you have to do like all the chores and you have to do jolt them to earn the respect to the locker room and then you you have to earn your way at the ranks so I love the fact that they also are trainees oh they do and there's like sub bands and feeder bands so, so, so yeah so, so. So yeah, you cut you come in as a young girl. You're in the you you are a trainee, absolutely. And your dream is to get into 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 the main AKB48. Um, and then if you're really successful, you might go off into a sub band. Where, you know, like maybe only four or five of them are in it, or fifteen or mm. sixteen. <laughs> um, and and but absolutely like that. Um, and and the girl you know, like you said, the one that, that shaved her head and had to apologise for what she did. That's that's a that's a fairly extreme version, but it very is out of that. I guess that sort of culture in in many aspects of Japanese society historically. Think of sumo wrestlers; it's very similar there. Think of um, uh, sort of any any kind of military world that they have historically. We go back and look at our samurai films. You know, there are there's, there's a hierarchy, a strict a strict social. Yeah and environmental hierarchy there and, and if you break it you get relegated and and you've brought shame upon yourself and the people that you represent um it's a bit alien to you and me i guess as as, as sort of westerners but um yeah anyway yeah i i, I suggest check, checking that out if, if you can find a copy of it although it's not easy i have a look i mean i've just also seen here that the 2016 nhk documentary report the popularity of akb 48's handshake sessions may contribute to the decline of romantic relationships amongst young japanese people including herbivore men which triggered debates according to the report that some fans would rather spend their time supporting their favorite idols than actively pursuing love interests uh, well, this is the this, this is the problem they have in Japan, uh, isn't it? Full stop. So they, they... Th- there's a number of issues they have in Japan. I know there's uh, the young people who don't like to leave the house, and they have their families. Uh, hikimori, yeah. They have to bring them food and stuff. Yeah, but they have, but you know, because Japan is kind of limited in its um, in the amount of actual physical land. It's a big country, but a lot of it's uninhabited because it's like mountainous, and and so they have they have a problem where you know people who do get married only have one child, and they work so hard, um, so they don't really have time to have have a second child. Um, young people just are not getting married or dating or having children as much as they should. They've got an aging population. Um, Japan has a problem. It has a negative population growth, and they are absolutely reliant. I think we talked about this before. I talked about a documentary I think I saw about where they're reliant on the immigrant community, which, of course, they hate because they feel that it will ruin their country to have any immigrants. I mean, anything Mr. Trump might do, Mr. Abe, is, is 20 times worse in this regard. Um, and and so so this, this the fact that the idol culture, and it's all about loving your idol more than you might love somebody that you could actually be with and that you're more excited about shaking their hands or having their lunchbox or something like that, you know, is, is all indicative of a culture which is, and a country which is losing its ability to sustain itself. Um, and some of that is born out of, you know, just the geography and the, the difficulty people have and some of it's down to the 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 culture that they have you know that they're, they're they're not an expressive outrageous people in in 
in the big sense of of who they are. I mean, I think there are obviously individuals. Or everyone who's an actor is, is is a little bit outrageous, yeah. And so we, we we see a lot of them, but as a whole, they're very conservative. The little C, and you know, public displays of affection, apparently real displays of affection, private displays of affection, are in short demand. And and these idol groups actually feed that. And you know, there's there's young people, and like you say, the Hekimoris, the people that just stay in, never leave the house, just play computer games all day. That that that's a thing. Um, it also has been a, in a few films that I've watched as a as a kickoff for something else. In fact, I uh, didn't yeah. um ah uh, was it was it the Sion Sono film? Was that in that someone a Hikamori? I can't remember. Oh, never mind. I'm 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 thinking thinking out loud. Anyway, there we go. We've 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 talked a lot about music documentaries now. <laughs> Well, I've got one last one um, before we before we uh, sign off here, and it's a band that I know you like, and that's Baby Metal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who, um, as part of their Stay Home, Stay Metal campaign, have screened the last two days. They have reshown their 2016 final uh, night of their their tour, and this is shot at the Tokyo Dome. And uh, the first night was the Red Knight, and the second night, the Black Knight. And uh, yeah, if you'd li- like Baby Metal, this is really good. I actually <laughs> watched this one, both of these live with Ven from uh, Cinema Recall, because he's a big Baby Metal fan, so that was fun. Yeah, I saw I saw them last year um, at the Brixton Academy, where they sort of, sort of um, previewed some of their new music from their album which was released late last year and it was fan-fucking-tastic but also an interesting social experiment to see who goes and watches baby metal that's not me and it turns out anybody <laughs> yeah i love the fact you distance yourself from them no not at all not at all it was um it was very interesting um I'm, yeah. I'm not huge on heavy metal what i like about baby metal is the way that they're sort of mel- melding sort of j-pop with metal because they're all very heavy the heaviest of metals you know it's the high high um high beat rate actually melds really well but you had you had a percentage of young girls dressing up like baby metal which i expected and you have a bunch of average joes like me and then you have the whole heavy metal spectrum there all the t-shirts it wasn't just people who liked the really heavy, dark stuff. It wasn't just people who liked death metal. It wasn't people that liked Aerosmith. It wasn't people like Def Leppard. You, the whole spectrum of metal music, long hair, short hair, piercings, bleach, mullets, whatever you want, was there. And the, the reach, the breadth of the reach was astonishing. Um, and this was just a, you know, this was a little gig at the Brixton Academy. What, two, two and a half thousand people? Um really what they're what they're designed for is is stadium dues which i think is what um is what they were showing they're showing the budokan um two nights weren't they which i think you can get on on cd um i believe so i mean it's so the tokyo dome which is like one of those legendary stadiums um arenas over in over in japan i mean there's a lot if they do the wrestle kingdom um tournaments there as well and it's i mean it's the size of the stage it was like really girls can you not find a smaller stage <laughs> it's like three little three little girls um on there i love the fact that one of them sings the songs and the other two do the interpretive dancing to it so so yeah so that, that's that that's sue metal is the singer and moa metal and yui metal are the 
they, they they do sing a couple of songs, I think. But they but anyway, only one one of them's left the band. The Yui Metal's left, and they've replaced yes, her with it's a just, uh, Sumo or Moa yeah, Metal now. But they've replaced Yui Metal with a rotating cast. So depends what night you see them. You see which one is the if different girls are the third one. But yeah, basically it's a it's a platform for the girl known as Sue Metal, who I think was in other bands before. She's a little bit older than the other two, I think, and. Um, yeah, it's 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 utterly manufactured, utterly utterly manufactured. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, this is. Um, I love the fact that they admit it as well. Yeah. It's not like, oh, we were like, oh, we were just like in the playground before. Let's do some metal. It's like, no, we were we were created by a, a record. Oh, label. And, and they'll absolutely and, um, say we'd never even heard of heavy metal music before we started doing it. Yeah. Um, and and I just love the way <laughs> they've been absolutely embraced by that that metal community, who who you know. I, I, I'm not part of that community, but I, I know they exist. They have their own music. They have Kerrang! magazine and Kerrang! the music channel. You know, they they absolutely exist, and they and, yeah. and they don't. They're not very accepting of other types of music. You like you like that. That's what you like. Um, and the fact that you will see Baby Metal on the front of Kerrang! magazine, you will see those people at the gigs. It's utterly bizarre how this manufactured band has been absolutely adopted. I mean, I've seen them do, um, since Sue Metal duet with the lead singer of Judas Priest. Uh, and, yep, yeah, and it's like, and there's not, there's, and there's no irony involved. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't a, a comedy. It isn't like the Foo Fighters getting Rick Astley up on stage. You know, <laughs> this is, um, this is genuine and it's, I find it fascinating. Um, where will, it, where will it end? I don't know, but uh, I mean, I'm sure it'll it'll burn out when Sue Metal goes off and finds something else to do because she's obviously the the money maker. But um, yeah. for now, I, I, it's it's a fascinating social experience, and um, I already had those those DVDs of those shows they were showing free, but I'm very glad that they did. Did you get a crystal uh, neck brace when you went to see them? No. <laughs> Because it's where they advertise it's like, we've given you all crystal neck braces. And I'm thinking, oh, that's real considerate <laughs> of them. And, it, and the uh, harder you headbang, the more it flashes. Oh, no. Apparently. So didn't, didn't, you want to believe the little skeleton man at the beginning. Didn't, so. didn't, didn't, didn't get that. No, they, they basically played through their new album. Some of the songs at the time didn't even have titles. Yeah. And, <laughs> but it was, it was, a, it was. An amazing show and probably better because it was such a small show because I could actually see what was going on. That's quite often when you go to bigger gigs, you're just watching it all on the screen. You think, why am I here again? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the band itself, I mean, I think I remember when that original sort of uh, video for uh, Gimme Chocolate came across and everyone was sort of like, it was weird when you watch it because it starts off as like, oh, wow, this is absolutely crazy. This is another, you know, crazy Japanese thing. And then by the time it ended, I think they they won everyone over. Cause it, and people started looking at it more and they started seeing, like, the guys in the band are all, like, these top session musicians and, and from, like, other metal bands and stuff. And the fact that they were so open of what the history of this band was. And, I mean, they obviously opened the door for that choir metal or cute metal, should we call it. And you've had other bands that followed in their wake, such as, like, Dolls Box and Deadlift Loita. So they're not the only band of this type out there. No, but but the, some some of the others, like Band Mage, you know, they're, they're, they're legitimate bands who, who use yes. the sort of the gothic Lolita look to do it. I mean, Baby Metal have far more in common with, funnily enough, AKB48 
than they do with some of those other bands but they have it's it's a thing um there's a record label in the uk can't think what they're called another band i love called it's called scandal um but they're more of a, a, a sort of pop rock kind of deal and their record i can't think what the label's called but basically that label now just does dolls box and band made and you know those kind of those kind of there's 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 definitely a thing for it. i mean i'm hope i'm hopefully seeing scandal in september depending what happens in the current um apocalypse world i'm hoping that doesn't get cancelled or put back um and again what you see there is a wide mix of people of ages of genders the scandal did um I think they famously done the sing the lead song to Bleach. Bleach, that's a popular anime, right? Um, that's what that's yeah, what they're that's what they're famous for. So they've got the whole Weibo community as well, which are into them. But I just I just I just love it because it just seems to hit a wide demographic as opposed to a very narrow obsessive demographic. But there you go. So yeah, if you go and see Scandal in London in September, you might meet me. I'll be the fat old guy at the back <laughs> I would say go buy you a beer or something but now this is going to be some fat old bloke getting a bunch of beer bowl from <laughs> and they're going to be like are you that Stephen Palmer guy and it's like oh yeah yeah totally totally <laughs> I think also I'm teetotal so just buy me a coke right <laughs> um yeah, bare metal. Definitely check them out. If anything, they're great because they're not their own ass. Like some no, it's metal it's bands, without. So. It, it absolutely wears on its sleeve what it is, and it's without pretense or artifice. And it's, I find it glorious, and I I, I love it so much. Um, but it's not necessarily for everybody. But uh, I don't think my mum would like it. But oh, she might. You never know. <laughs> Okay, so uh, that's obviously what we've been watching. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, it's on to our feature presentation, God of Gamblers. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Recall Podcast here at ThatMomentIn.com. I am your host, The Vern, and on each episode, myself, along with a guest, we'll be talking about an iconic scene from a classic movie. Which films will we be discussing? Well, that's all up to you. Because before each episode airs, we're going to be giving you a poll of great flits to choose from. Whichever one gets the most votes, that's the one we'll be talking about. So, listen to the Cinema Recall Podcast on the site thatmomentin.com, or on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Podomatic, or SoundCloud. Thank you very much, and hope you enjoy it. Released in 1989, this Hong Kong action comedy drama directed by Wong Jing and headed up by Chow Yun-Fat and Andy Lo sees Chow Yun-Fat playing a world-famous gambler known as God of Gamblers who keeps his identity safe from the public, has a love of fedora brand chocolate and also wears a little jade pinky ring. At the same time, his uh, counterpart here played by Andy Lowe, Little Knife is a mediocre gambler who idolizes the God of Gamblers and basically 
accidentally ends up uh, knocking out the god of gamblers after a practical joke he sets up for his neighbour he's in a conflict with goes a little astray. And now the two team up as as Little Knife sets out to use the god of gamblers skills for his own means. Now, this is a film which I remember way back in the day when I started getting into, you know, Kung Fu cinema, Hong Kong cinema. Uh, this one came through on the Made in Hong Kong label, uh, which is why I also saw things such as like Petticoat Driver and Police Story. And I was mainly drawn into this one because it obviously had Cherry on Fat and I'd seen, you know, like a, um, the John Woo movies, so things like The Killer and Hard Boiled, which <coughs> despite what Stephen may say, or just old awesome all-time classics and um, really establishing myself just how awesome an actor Cherry Young Fat is and certainly a chance to see when you see like the cover of this film and you've got Cherry Young Fat he's got like the cool suit he's got the slip back hairstyle he's just looking like a real total boss sort of character and you think oh wow it's gonna see Cherry Young Fat doing like the hustler but for Baccarat and uh I would say that that's not exactly the way this story goes. But uh, Stephen, I mean, this was the first time watching yourself, crossing one off the cinema shame list. And um, what did you make of this one? Um, well, that wasn't the film I was expecting to watch. <laughs> mm. Like you say, I mean, Chow Young Fat is probably one of the coolest men ever born, right? Um, uh, and, and as as you say, I mean, whatever I might think about John Woo films, I'm, I'm not going to criticise Cherry on Fat. Um, and I was expecting a sort of semi-action, not quite James Bondy film, but you know, I was expecting an action film with with gambling thrown in and and maybe some cool quips or something like that. And Cherry on Fat looking incredibly handsome, and like you say, with the old slick back hair and a tuxedo and. And maybe some high stakes games of of of, um, of of poker going on or something like that. Of course, what I'd forgotten was Wong Jing, and what this actually is is um, it's a comedy, <laughs> a Molita comedy, <laughs> just just <laughs> like a Stephen Chow film, really, um, starring yeah. two people which I would not necessarily associate with slapstick comedy. Um, so you know we've got Cherry on Fat and, and Andy Lau, who has you know has is 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 one of the coolest customers of of modern Chinese and Hong Kong cinema. Um, I mean, this was just before he became a, the, the, the sort of the super duper star, sort of one of the four. I guess he is one of the four heavenly kings, or one of the new four heavenly kings, one of the one of the two. Um, this this is not the Andy Lau that we see f that that's sort all of made his, his super uber breakthrough in Infernal Affairs. This is this is a very different <laughs> different guy, um, and it's full of nonsense. It's full of really disturbing Wong Jingisms, um, including a, a, a necrophiliac rape, um, which. But but you know what? What a blast! And how good is Chow Yun Fat in this? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, did you perchance see the third season of Twin Peaks? No, I didn't. Okay, well, if you've seen this movie, you've pretty much seen seen that. <laughs> As it's very scarily similar, how how similar the two plot lines are in terms of what happens in this film and what happens in that. 
show. I mean, I, have you even seen Twin Peaks? Oh, the first two series I watch religiously, and, and I have on oh, I have okay. on Blu-ray. Um, at the time, mm-hmm. I I was there in the first series, watching it every week as a back yeah. in the nineties. Um, I just that I had no interest. I thought I had an interest in the third season, and then I realised I didn't because the, the time okay. had been lost. But okay, so what happens in that? Someone gets amnesia. Okay, so and... <laughs> you, let's, let's just draw a little comparison here. So you know Agent Del Cooper, mm-hmm. Mr. Cool Customer, got all the right quips. Yep. He's our Chayun Fat. He's our God of Gamblers. And as in this film, he gets... He comes out of the... Um, out of the Red Lodge, and he's basically reduced to being a childlike idiot, which unfortunately is a fate that befalls Chariot Fat here. So we get subjected to some really awful Rayman esque antics, and in again in Twin Peaks season three, we're forced to endure this whole season of Agent Cooper acting as this idiot character before he claws it all back for the final two episodes, and we get the person we wanted to see, which is essentially what we get here. <laughs> We come into the film thinking, you know, we're going to see Chariot Fat. As you said, he's going to be the, the cool customer, like, demon gambler who's, like, able to play, like, high-stakes games and win them all. And there's going to be, like, some intrigue and maybe, like, a little bit of action, as you said, thrown there. You know, because, obviously, high-stake games, gangsters, all goes together. You see on the cover of the DVD, everyone's got guns. It's, uh, it really takes you off in a different direction when you actually watch the film and you realise... Oh yes, there is some Stephen Chow-esque weird comedy happening here, and I mean, if for those who are obviously not familiar with with Wong, um, with Wong Jing, he's written and produced and directed over 175 films, so he's up there in MK territory, and uses a lot of directing assistance to really sort of enable him to work on multiple uh-huh. movies at once. Um, at the same time, he's got a real habit for giving people what they want instead of going down the path of other directors would go where they're trying to create an audience by giving people films that they think that they want. And as a result, his films tend to, you know, they fall into general categories, you know, like broad comedies or martial arts, erotic thrillers, um, including Naked Killer, gangster films such as Young and Dangerous, and... Often in here we'll get, you know, the slapstick and toilet humour, cartoon violence, sexual titillation and parodies to Hollywood cinema thrown in there. So he's certainly an interesting uh, cat and especially if you like Stephen Chow movies, he's really responsible for quite a few of his early films as well. So he'd be a name that name that will come up quite a lot if you the more you sort of watch in uh, Hong Kong cinema. Yeah, you... you, you... <laughs> The, the name Wong Jing is not a, a stamp of quality like some of the other people <laughs> we talk about, but he's a vital figure in this sort of late 80s, 90s period of Hong Kong cinema. You know, uh, not not just in the directing, he acts a bit, but in, in terms of production, I think is where I've always thought he was more important. And he has given people their breaks and he did keep that that cinema afloat um in a post beijing world um or beijing led world so it's easy to knock wong jing and back in my very first um website is to do i i, I did a wong jing a thong for a month <laughs> just films that he he directed and talked. and and i absolutely went at it with a very dismissive 
viewpoint. But actually, when you when you dig down to it, yes, he's been involved in hundreds of films, but some of them are stone cold classics. Um, and he does like a sequel, doesn't he? As well, he does. And he's still doing it um, now. <laughs> you need. I mean, we look at the sequels for this series and I mean it's not just the fact that you've got the, the Mortal God of Gamblers, you've got the Vegas to Macau series and you've also got Aces High so you've got three sets of spin-off series all linked to this series and they still all interlink in various ways as characters play ver- play relationship relation characters over a bit like brothers or cousins and it if it wasn't for this being so common in the Hong Kong film industry and we've seen it like multiple times, like when you look at a better tomorrow, Cherry and Fat's character dies, spoiler alert, and yet he's back in in uh, Better Tomorrow Two because he's there playing the brother. Yeah, there's a lot of identical twins, aren't there, in Hong Kong? Yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, I, <laughs> interesting. I I I'd seen one of the spin-offs to this, and, and that's the other thing which surprised me. So I I I've seen and enjoyed all for the winner. So we talked about Stephen Chow earlier. So Stephen Chow his big super break was a film which was a parody of this film called all for the winner um now seeing the film i don't know how you can parody a film which is <laughs> like this <laughs> but, but it makes a lot more sense and there is there is in that film the re, the re, there is a there is a scene from this film in that film um near the end chariot fat in slow motion enters the um enters the the singaporean gamblers sort of uh casino i suppose or whatever it is but he does it in slow motion very cool very 90s and that scene literally stephen chow watches it in all for the winner and copies it but obviously he does pretend slow motion it's very funny um wong jing liked it so much <laughs> <laughs> that he that he made all for the winner part of the God of Gamblers canon, and in the second film, Stephen Chow is the is is the is the lead character. So his character from a from a parody copy is now the lead in God of Gamblers. Is it God of Gamblers two or is it? Oh, I can't forget. God of Gamblers two is Stephen Chow's the lead. Yeah, but Andy Lau is in it as well. <laughs> And it gets even worse, right? Because there's another film, which is a sequel to All for the Winner, called The Top Bet, which Stephen Chow has a tiny little cameo in, and it's actually a Dodo Chen film, um, and Anita Wee, I think, is in it as well. And so, so, only in Hong Kong cinema could a film spawn three films that have nothing to do with each other but they have interrelated characters who actually exist in both fiction and in reality within that film's canon it's like ah mind blown (laughs) um but you know back to the point i I just i just this isn't the film i was expecting but i kind of really enjoyed it (laughs) well that's good because Let's face it, Wong Jing doesn't take criticism well, <laughs> as um, the director An Hui uh, remarked of the 1990 drama Song of the Exile, who wants to watch the autobiography of a fat woman? And then four years later, he found himself attacked outside his office and his teeth knocked out, um, which has led to much speculation that Wong Jing is also related to the triads. Well, I mean, obviously I couldn't possibly comment, but I think it's fairly fairly certain that 
his his funding does come from the triads and i think films like edward pang's vulgaria um i think there's a i think there's a wong jing analog in there which is basically saying that he is <laughs> but you know hong kong cinema is absolutely tied to the triads so if wong jing isn't i'll be absolutely shocked Okay, so yeah, I mean, let's obviously just start. I mean, Kochan, um, the the god of gamblers here, played by Chow Yun Fat. I mean, when he's obviously introduced, he's the gambler that we want him to be, and he's actually kind of like a hired gun in many ways. He doesn't just gamble for himself, um, but he also helps other people. And um, there's, as we see him, um, he's brought into us a, a take revenge on a. Another rival gambler called the Demon of Gamblers, who's a Singaporean gambler who cheated this guy's father and basically drove him to suicide. So Chan is brought in to play this high stakes game with him, and his only payment he asks for it is a box of chocolates, which is such a weird quirk for a character to be so obsessed with just chocolate kind of yeah he's willing to stake every stake his like reputation on like in this high stakes game with just payment the only payment he's taken is just chocolate and let's let, let's just ignore the fact also he's not actually a great gambler <laughs> he's he's um he's more of he's a cheat <laughs> he counts cards and and things like that um uh he, he yes he he He's very attuned to the world, um, and I think I guess yeah. And ca- carry on because I think I think the this this initial meeting there's one point where you suddenly realise oh I'm watching that kind of film am I? <laughs> but I'll let you continue on with the pricey. <laughs> I mean, this was for I thought this was really good. I mean, we obviously introduced to his um, his bodyguard Dragon, who's um, an NX. Uh, special forces soldier and he's uh, basically there for Kochan's p- protection but apparently not so much the fact that he manages to uh, let Kochan wander off and end up falling down this bloody hill which makes up the real sort of meat of the story as he's uh, taken in by little knife um, I have to say that what is it with the nicknames in this film because they're all awful I mean Andy Lau's little knife um, Kochan becomes chocolate I mean, I mean he, he, I'll, 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 lead, I'll lead you back, to, as I always do, the Giddens Coes, um, you are the apple of my eye, the lead character says, and he's looking back to his friends, and he says, yep, and here's my friend Fatty, because there's always a Fatty. And <laughs> the, 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 the nicknames in, in, in these stories are always on the nose or rubbish. <laughs> And and this has one of each because <laughs> I don't know why he's called Little Knife at all. I don't know, but even worse, he's introduced to his girlfriend's parents as little, as Knife. Yeah. And I have to say, if you're meeting your girlfriend's parents for the first time, having your street name of Knife is hardly going to warm warm you to their <coughs> affections. It has and to be and said. and let's not forget um bit bit of stargazing here. So we've talked about Chow Yun Fat, we talked about Andy Lau, and Joey Wang is um or Joey jo- mm. Joey Wong Joey Wang is is um. Is, is Little Knife's girlfriend until she mysteriously disappears from the plot three quarters of the way through the film. But yeah, it's um there's a bit of bit of bit of stargazing going on here for sure. So 
Yeah, I mean, Little Knife, when he's introduced, he's he works in slightly more scummier gambling dens. And I love his introduction, the fact he loses his bet and is basically thrown out the top of the building. Um, which I did, it brought back to mind our film we watched last time, uh, Touch of Sin, where you were, like, traumatised by the guy falling off the apartment block. And I wondered how you felt about Andy Lowe being thrown off a... Uh, in front of a, another apartment block onto the top of his car. Yeah, he's um, a <laughs> slightly different feel to the films, I think, <laughs> but but certainly coming from the same place. Yeah, I mean, this is again, this is where the problem problems really start starts like because yeah, Andy Lowe's character is really fun, and the sort of gambling circles he moves in, they're all sort of like these Gulliver-esque henchman-style gangster sort of thugs. Uh, so there's a lot of really fun scenes there. It's just a shame that why do we have to... We've got Chow Yun-Fat here, and we've got to have him play an imbecile for about three quarters of the film, and it's the most irritating performance, it has to be said. I see, I, Seeing this I disagree. man play a man-child. I disagree. I think he's fantastic, because I think his charisma shines through. And ironically, he won. He was He was up for the equivalent of the Hong Kong Oscars for this role. And he only lost out to himself in another film. <laughs> so so, yes. so you, you hated it, but it was actually really well regarded because I think it showed. So what we have to remember about Chao Fat, he, he sort of came from up from TV. Was it The Bund or something? Um, show about, yeah, I think I think it was sort of from memory. It's like a river in, is it in Beijing? Can't remember. But anyway, he, so he, he was a big TV star. And yes, of course, he, he made his name in in Hong Kong film. And obviously, we, we relate him always to things like John Woo films and obviously Crouching Tiger yeah. and things like that. But but to show sort of a comedic bent, I don't think we're expecting that of him. I, I thought he was really good. But I know what you mean. <laughs> I, the, the disappointment of what you're expecting compared to what's delivered. <laughs> you're going to basically watch Andy Lowe shout at Chow Young Fat for about three quarters of this movie. The only funny interaction that they really have is that when, you know, Chow, um, when he basically w- wake, wakes up after knocking himself unconscious, and Andy Lowe's uh, Lil Knife's first sort of response is just basically run in the room and start kicking him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I yeah. I, I, I sense we've had very different experiences with this movie. <laughs> I think I remembered it very differently. I think this is again like Pedicard Driver, but I remember the, I remember the start and I remember the end, but I somehow forgotten what happened in between. Because in my head, I remembered like all the gambling scenes. I remember the shootout sequence that we have mm. in in that third sort of quarter and and, and that. And I just remember Cherry and Fat being really cool. I didn't remember a damn bit about these manchild bits. So. Which is which is which is probably three quarters of the film. <laughs> I know. Um but that that no, that that isn't what I had a problem with. I thought I thought he was really good in it. I you know if you if you don't like that kind of film, if if that kind of that mo tale sort of nonsense comedy where people do do ridiculous things to each other, usually without consequence as well. And it's not Stephen Chow doing it. I, I can absolutely understand your your disappointment. <laughs> and you've watched too many films, and you've what you've done, you've filtered out some of the crap. Oh yes, I remember that's really good. And uh, but I, I I was I was a bit trepidous because 
I was worried about all those sequels. And I, I honestly, I thought All for the Winner is a parody of this film. That film's yeah. funny, that film's got laughs, and it's obviously going to be taking the mick. And I thought, no, it's just a rip-off of it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, interesting. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I know where this, I know where this, is, this conversation's going, but not where I thought it was. <laughs> oh, I mean, the guys, over, the guys and girls over on our Facebook page really got excited when they found out we were covering this film. It has to be said. So <coughs> you, certainly, it's a favourite with them are, as are well. Gonna be on, are you going to be on your own <laughs> from your own Fair from your own selection? <laughs> no, I mean, the problem I have with this film is it just feels that these scenes between Little Knife and Chocolate are just so mean spirited. There's no, I know they're trying to do like this comedic thing, but he ends up feeling like um, chocolate's like this burden on on little life, and just the scene where he abandons him at the bus stop, and I was like, oh my god, this is too hard to watch. He now. abandons him on Hennessy Road, and he doesn't really know he's been abandoned, and then, but then, but then, Appa- but then little. Apparently he goes to Disney World. <laughs> well, yeah, but... From what I can tell, it's not like he just randomly finds him again and he's there with the Mickey balloons. And it's like, where the hell did you go to? Because you had no money a minute ago. So. <laughs> yeah, he's um, but but that's a that's character growth, isn't it? For um, I mean th- that bit of it, I'm all right with. It's the bit of okay, obviously this is a this is a 30 year old film. There are going to be spoilers. Mm. Um, at the end. When 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 things get resolved and uh, and then Joe on fact is back in his um, in command of his faculties, he doesn't. Yep. Only takes being run over by a car to do <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, so. yeah, because because that's how it works. Um, he he doesn't he doesn't um, admonish this guy for abusing him and taking advantage of him and as you say, kicking him and stealing his money and all those kind of <laughs> things. No, he says right. I'm going to take you on a tour of the world, and we're going to gamble together. And it's like, oh, <laughs> you, 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 you forgive people easily, but that—that that is because you know, Little Knife does have a character arc here where he realizes he's been a bit of a dick and actually grows to care for this fella. There's a, there's a lot of another, uh, a bit, a bit of a Rain Man homage going on here, isn't there, really? But yeah, and I mean, again, this is this is the. I think this is the thing with obviously with Rain Man. It's about you know Dustin Hoffman playing this autistic card counter, and you know with my own life situation, I don't tend to watch a lot of things with you know people mm. with special needs and stuff because you know this is the life I live. My kids are autistic and and that so things with like mental health and stuff I don't tend to watch. And I think this is again the thing because of the change in my life situation and stuff that I'm now coming to this and it's. It's ringing different chords mm. to myself um, because of the character that Cherry and Fat is is sort of playing. As you said, it's that sort of Rain Man style character where they're very sort of like childlike, but at the same time they have this exceptional skill that is then being manipulated by a third party. In Rain Man, you've got his brother, and this one you've obviously got Little Knife, who's manipulating it for his own sort of personal game. At the same, but. It's not like he's sort of like um, being overly abusive to him. It's more sort of for the benefit of his little gang, as they're all sort of seem benefiting from his from um, his skills. So it's as I said, it just um, when I'm when I'm being subjected to watching that sort of man child performance, it's like ah. I'm okay. No, I can, I can, I, 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 
absolutely what you're what you're bringing there is, is something which says you know that's not what it's like <laughs> it's you know you know you you and and you'd be I think absolutely it's, sensitive to that it's the because when you watch when when i watch cinema it's for escapism so it's sort of like why do i want to watch more of what i have already you know, this is what, and that's the that's what the basic word I said. But at the same time, I can see people obviously watching and enjoying this. Like, like it sounds like you did yourself. And for the most part, I really enjoyed what this film brings. Um, there's certainly some really fun gambling sequences. As I said, certainly the scenes like in the the first scene where they go to uh, the gambling den, they got like that gorilla style um, gangster there. Mm. Those are really. Those are really sort of uh, fun sequences. It's just more the the emotional uh, depth parts where they tried to add some like a uh, some conflict in there that uh, didn't really sort of gel for myself on this one. And uh, again, it's I'm watching a Chaoyuan Fat movie, but I'm not getting what I want from a Chaoyuan Fat movie for the most part. So that's uh, the other part. But the the shootout bits are really cool. Yeah, I mean, I as much as I enjoyed it, <laughs> yeah. There is a bit, and I talked about it at the beginning. There, there, there's the there is a bit which is really freaking distasteful, <laughs> and it's just so Wong Jing. Do you remember in um, ah, oh, you know, is it, is it Naked Killer, where the girls get freed from their past by being gang raped? Oh yes, yeah. yes. In this one, we 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 have a character. So Cho Young Fat's girlfriend is murdered. And the bloke tries to rape her dead body, and it's—I wasn't sure if I misread no, that whole sequence. No, so I was like, "Did that happen?" No, you didn't. He—he—he like... he, he kicks her out of a window. <laughs> She's dead on the grass outside, and he says, mm. "Oh, I'm still going to have you," and and he writhes suggestively on top of her. No, you didn't misunderstand it at all, and <laughs> and it's just like. I mean, we, we deal, especially with this era of, of Hong Kong film, this sort of eight, late 80s, 90s era. This is the time of Rape by an Angel and all, all those kind of mm. exploitation films. And there's a real mix of what's Cat 3 and apparently what's fit for for Lunar New Year comedies. Um, you know, we, we often struggle with just the, the way they bandy around the word rape and sometimes i think that is possibly things not quite being translated correctly but still it shows a lack of sensitivity if nothing else but this is just you know they're trying to show what an awful fella this guy is but there's ways and there's means a murder would have been enough i <laughs> just oh bizarre and i just think and at that point i went wong jing because he's quite often that happens but then after that though i thought i thought the film then says you know what i'm going to stop being a a, a wacky knockabout comedy i'm going to be a completely different film now which happens a lot i suppose in this type of this type of cinema just as I said, just uh, it just had me curious because you mentioned obviously raped by an angel. Yeah, that's another Wong Jing, isn't it? Yeah, so. the whole the whole series. <laughs> oh, God, I forgot about those those movies. Yeah, the opera. Cause, yeah, yeah. I think I think Rape by an Angel was released over here as Naked Killer Two. Right. Which would be a real shock if you thought you were getting a sequel to a proper sequel to Naked Killer. So. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, almost some some people that we know, like people like Anthony Wong, made their made got their big breaks in films like that. So you know, these things happen. But you know, it's it's easy for us to be critical from our comfortable Western 2020 viewpoints. It is wrong. It was wrong then. It's wrong now. <laughs> but I I do wonder if some of it is being lost in translation. However, when you see the physical act on the screen, you just think. What were they thinking? And all those people that have been involved in this, you know, we can't just blame Wong Jing, you know. The, the, yeah. But hey ho, anyway, that's that's the bit that got me. But I stuck with it. Douglas. Um, so yeah, our big sort of finale here, which is um, again, it's more, it's more Hong Kong nonsense, really, uh, where we've got our rival um, gangler Kang, uh, Chen Kang Sing who's using special glasses to see the marks he's put on the cards so he can cheat at the cards. But, of course, we find out that uh, Ko Chun has been using a special contact lens so that he can... And has already changed all the marks on the cards. So, um, What do we think of this amazing uh, plot for two men to cheat extraordinarily at uh, cards? I didn't understand any of the gambling throughout the whole film right so i mean they are playing baccarat which um, isn't an overly popular game i mean it's james that's bond's, james bond's favorite game, game of yeah. choice well, and apparently baccarat is basically like tossing a coin it's a 50 50 job right whether you win or lose so any skill in it is actually fairly nullified <laughs> but but even earlier than that did you even understand they 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 played some kind of head-to-head mahjong earlier on which with a bit of chopstick, no, it wasn't chopstick, it was another kind of dealing thing. Um, th- th- that's not how you play Mahjong. <laughs> it's not, it's not... I, I never understood how you well, play Mahjong firstly, in, in films and you stuff. Need, so. You need four people. It's more like bridge than it is like poker, which is how they were playing it. What was, and what was the game? That, and, and the dice, the dice game, where you had to get the lowest score, and then the woman... The Japanese Yakuza woman turns up and plays for the guy. Um, and then apparently if you smash one of the dice because you shake the shaker so hard, that's okay. And therefore only four of your five dice. Can... None of none of it made any sense. And we also know that, that um, you know, Charion Fat's character isn't really a god of gambling. He's a god of extreme attention noticing <laughs> you know he hears and sees things the fact they were both cheating with their special contact lenses is just well all right then <laughs> it's, it's it's ridiculous but we've got we've got this far in the film is it any more ridiculous than what we've seen already for all the as stupid as the gambling sequences often are they are it's still really fun oh to indeed watch. yeah i have to say i really enjoyed it enjoyed how they shot those and yeah as you said the initial sort of high stakes games that he's shown playing at the start and when he sort of introduced this mythical gambler i thought was all really really cool and exciting and and stuff even if even if you don't follow what's going on it's it explains enough so you know who's winning which i thought was just something i always appreciate when you watch like sports Films and stuff. They give you just enough so you can keep track of what's supposed to be happening. So even if you don't understand the game, so this is a film I've spent thirty years not getting around to watch, and 
Yeah, I I still thought it was fine. I'm sad that you've been disappointed by it. Um, is it? I'm not disappointed as such. I mean, it's just a different film than I remember it it being. Mm. Um, so I think now it's fresh in my mind. I mean, I might go back and rewatch it like a couple of days from now and have like a different experience. Mm. Um, this is just obviously the experience I've. I've had revisiting it now, and yes, the bits I remember still stood up. As I said, the gambling and the shooting, and Chai and Fat playing the guy I want. It's just the middle bit. So I'm viewing it through a different lens, as mm. I've, as I said before, than you know back when I was in in like '99 when I first saw saw this film. So I'm in in college. I've just like young, free, and single without like life commitments. So I've got time to. I'm just sort of in, taking in all these, taking in this sort of like new avenue of Hong Kong cinema because really into that point it's just like Kung Fu movies and Yakuza movies and uh, like Godzilla movies is all what I've sort of been watching. So seeing these other films that have been brought across because the labels are trying to find, they're trying to find a way to cash in on like the stars that have now become established through like the cult following. So people like Andy Lowe and Chow Yun Fat is so like, well, what else did they do? Let's bring this across as well. So it's, um, yeah, I think it's definitely got its, it's deserving of its cult reputation. And I can see why people, people like it. It's just, uh, as I said, it was just a different view and experience than I thought I was going to get, uh, when I initially picked that. And this time it's, it was, uh, it was, it, it was an okay experience. So, my long-winded way of answering your question. Hopefully that. <laughs> yeah, he didn't answer anything at all, really. No. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like it this time. You used to like it before. You maybe should go back and see what what's wrong with you. No, it's it's fine. I think I think it was absolutely unexpected. The second film I've watched recently, which that's not the film I was expecting to be. The other one being the African Queen, which is a film I took even longer to get round to watching. I had no idea that was a comedy either. <laughs> So, um, well, I mean, our last pick touches in. I had no idea that was going to go into vengeance uh, trilogy territory when we watched that one. So exactly. So sometimes you know, sometimes the posters, the reputation, and and the talent involved in it sometimes makes you misunderstand. Not misunderstand, but you you come into it with a different expectation. And for me, in this in this case. I enjoyed it way more than I thought I would. Although I know absolutely, absolutely what you mean about. A good gambling film is, or, or a film based around gambling, you know, even if it's Ocean's Eleven or something like that, is is it, it can be fun and tension-inducing. Um, so uh, I did. Ha- I haven't watched the From Vegas to Macau films, although I did accidentally yeah. catch the trailer to From Vegas to Macau Three. They're very different. <laughs> <laughs> they are certainly From Vegas to Macau Three is. Um, it's all star studded action and there were planes blowing up and people doing incredible stunts and I'm thinking, yeah, this this um this has gone a long way, but I'll I will probably check them out, but I think they're coming from a completely different place. So is there anything else that you would would recommend for for viewing? I mean you we obviously touched on the sequels already for this one, which is I think if you like this one, I think is the best next thing to do is just to to look at this from the Vegas to Macau series, the Ace is High. Basically, any of the the spin-offs and prequels that this film generated um, of its popularity, I think, are all worth checking out. So, but anything else that you would throw into that mix? All right. So, so I am going to go for one of the the, the, the film we've talked about a couple of times. Is all for the winner, 
um, Stephen Chow's big breakout film is a parody of this film, if such a thing is possible. Um, apart from he's the he's the saint of gamblers in this one, um, <laughs> but it's got all the things in it that makes a Stephen Chow film great. Not just in terms of the comedy, but that's his pairing with Ungman um, Tat, which you'll see him doing in in many of his films. There's a few other people in there that you might recognise, like Corey Yuen. Um, yeah, uh, it, it's. But it's it's just proper funny, and it's and it's a sudden clicking that the of of someone, and there are and this that film then became the the biggest selling film of the year in in Hong Kong, and and made a superstar of Stephen Chow. Now, on a completely different um, from a different country, from a different time, but using gambling or or, or, or yeah, sort of th- those kind of games as it's as its root is 2014 South Korean film called um, The Divine Move, um, which is basically an action film based around um, the board game Baduk, which we might know as Go in the West. Yes, it's true. <laughs> it's an action film based around Go. Um, stars, who's it star? Jong Woo Sung, who's who's a big star, probably been in a couple of films that we've talked about before, and Lee Bum Soo as well, um, and An Sung Ki. Actually, it's got, it's got it's got a great cast, um, and and Lee Si Young, the, the lady who I always say I love all her films. Um, this is another one. It's a really great, somewhat bonkers action film. But based around a, a sort of a competitive board game where lots of money's involved, um, bit bit obscure. Um, was a bit of a surprise when I found it back in nineteen uh, in nineteen fourteen. I'm not that old. In twenty fourteen, um, if you can track that down, that's good. That might have been more the film that you were looking for from God of Campus. <laughs> so yeah, that, that 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 that's where I would go. Fantastic. Um, well, obviously that was uh, thoughts on God of Gamblers. Um... If uh, you haven't done already, please do uh, hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you happen to listen to us and uh, leave us a review. And um, also, you can uh, check out our full archive episodes at uh, asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com and on there you can also uh, get in touch with us on the show. You can also get in touch with us via our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, which is at AC Film Club. We're also on Instagram as well. Um... Stephen, it is obviously your turn to pick next. What would you like to choose? It is, and I've changed my mind through this episode. Um, I was originally actually going to pick It Man, um, because I feel one of the people we haven't really talked about is Donnie Yen. However, I do feel I talked about the whole series of films when I was discussing it. Um, (laughs) Discussing the fourth, fourth film in today's episode. So actually, I'd like to go back. Um, I think I was I bought a Choi Hark film to us before. I would like us to look up Once Upon a Time in China Two, which is um, which is a bit of Jet Li, a bit of Donnie Yen, and most people would say that is the best of that film series and doesn't really require you to have watched the first film first. So yeah, Once Upon a Time in China Two. Yeah, uh, Once Upon a Time in China Two, uh, part of uh, Jet Li's. Once Upon a Time in China trilogy of films, even though the series would run on a lot longer. Uh, you said already, directed by Chu Hawk. And um, 
it's really sort of noteworthy, especially amongst martial arts fans, for the showdown which we see between Jet Li and Donnie Yen. A fight that we would have to wait until uh, Zhang Zemo's hero to finally get that much anticipated rematch between the two martial arts masters. So, definitely one I'm uh, interested to to uh, revisit again. Um, my money, I always enjoyed Once Upon a China, Time in China Free, so. Be interesting to see. Three's uh, the one with the dragon dance fight, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's the one with the really elaborate um, I mean, dragon dancing competition. I'm not going to lie, I love all five films, even the ones without Jet Li. Um, I think they're a fantastic <laughs> series. Even even Once Upon a Time in Amer- in China and America. I even like that one, even though I slagged it off earlier on. But I think this is a, this is a, a standard bearer film. And what I'm hoping is that we both love it this time. That's uh, obviously coming up on our next episode. Uh, thank you as always for listening, and thank you to my co host Stephen. Pleasure as always. And uh, we'll be back next time, as I said, talking about Once Upon a Time in China 2. But until then, keep yourself safe, stay indoors, and wash those damn hands. Good night. Kinono